Hello everyone and welcome to episode 98 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. Now today's episode is um, I think coming out the day before International Women's Day um, and in the month of International Women's History Month Um, and so as this podcast specialises in Black British and Caribbean history which tends to focus on people of African descent, of the African diaspora, meaning they are most likely to be black, then it means today's episode is going to be about black women. Um, But not just about black women, we're going to be looking at the ways in which they are thought about, recorded, um, and kind of looked at historically, especially when it comes to black British history, or British history, shall we say, more broadly. Um, We're going to be looking at some feminist theory, Um, feminism a movement that you know aims for the equality of the sexes um, in a whole wide range of different fields professions areas socially politically economically Um, and however the history of this um, and because of of the way in which black people as a whole um, have been made to um, appear or feel inferior through enslavement um, and other kind of legacies of empire, colonisation and that kind of thing. Um, the way in which uh, black women have been excluded from feminist movements is important um, and pertinent and it has often meant that black women have organised on their own because they have not been included um, in the feminism of white women and that's true of in Britain and in the United States and some of the theory today will be coming from the US. Um, today's title is called White Women Listen. Um, it comes from an article written by Hazel Carby that was called White Women Listen. We're going to be looking at that um, as part of our theory today, just exploring black women in Britain, historically, in the archives, in the books um, and all of that good stuff. <laughs> I'm sure you'll know from the countless episodes on this podcast alone that black women have a long-standing presence in Britain. However, their presence is often not recorded uh, and shared and I think it's still safe to say that black women are somewhat underrepresented within British history. Literature regarding black women in Britain in the 18th and 19th century oftentimes relies on their own narratives The most often referenced are Phyllis Wheatley, Mary Prince and Mary Seacole, who I think I've done an episode on before. Um, And they all publish texts pertaining to their life experiences. Now, without these, it's unlikely they would actually be recognised today. uh, And it could be argued that apart from Mary Seacole, Phyllis Wheatley and Mary Prince aren't really known or kind of given the same regard as Mary Seacole, primarily because Mary Seacole is on the primary school curriculum in schools, um, and Mary Prince and Phyllis Wheatley aren't, and are also from a different time period, more associated with um, slavery and abolitionist movements. Um, However, it does seem that their decision to write about themselves, and they all did this for a variety of reasons, Mary Prince, um, it was part of the abolitionist agenda, Phyllis Wheatley was writing poetry to further, again, the abolitionist agenda, and also... um, just because she was such a brilliant poet, many people actually didn't believe that she wrote the work that she said she did, um, which says more about racism and the superiority complex that white literary circles had regarding enslaved people of African descent than anything else. Um, But her work was contested and she had to prove that she'd written this uh, poetry herself. And this all has historical records, um, which means she is, has a place in the archives, shall we say. 
Mary Seacole wrote to fund her life and her continued work um, trying to heal soldiers uh, within Britain um, and on front lines in the Crimea. Um, she worked to support British war efforts from her own pocket um, and when she wrote her book, the proceeds were, in a sense, kind of reimbursing her um, and allowing her to actually have a life in Britain um, after the war. Now, I can't be sure enough to say for certain, but I don't believe any of these women wrote deliberately to write themselves into history, shall we say, as an intentional or deliberate act, but their work lives on because they did that even if they weren't aware of that, the fact that that was what they were doing. Um, it's allowed them to remain within historical narratives um, and highlight really how necessary um, other methods of historical research are needed when scholarship pertaining to black women in Britain is so limited. It notes often the lack of opportunity and value placed on women moving into British society, forcibly or voluntarily, um, and historians like David Olasoga note, and I quote, it creates a challenge to the historian to locate and represent the voices of black women in his text, Black and British, A Forgotten History. It seems as though even when black men can be written into the narrative, the same can't be said for black women um, as they fall into this area. This seems to be an abyss, a black hole of women doing anything um, in British society at a certain point. Um, it seems as if their lives just weren't documented, weren't important enough, um, and weren't of enough value to be recorded. And whilst we know that's not true, um, and work is consistently being done to change this narrative, um, it still has a long way to go. I mentioned at the start a little bit of theory um, by Hazel Carby called White Women Listen. Um, and I'm going to read quite a large chunk from it because it just says it better than I ever could. Um, and I just don't think there's any point in me re rewording and rephrasing something that has already been so wonderfully articulated. Um, and Hazel Carby's work has informed a lot of my master's dissertation, which was about uh, black women in Britain, Caribbean women specifically. Um, and so... I'm quite happy to share this with you today because I really enjoyed this part of it, thinking essentially about the ways in which um, black women make up um, history, how they're represented um, and how history is kind of constructing um, womanhood um, and how that can impact black women and, and negatively impact them as well. The black woman's critique of history has not only involved us in coming to terms with absences, we have also been outraged by the ways in which it has made us visible, when it has chosen to see us. History has constructed our sexuality and our femininity as deviating from those qualities with which white women, as the prize objects of the Western world, have been endowed. We have also been defined in less than human terms. Our continuing struggle with history began with its discovery of us. However, this chapter will be concerned with her story rather than his story. We wish to address questions to the feminist theories that have been developed during the last decade. A decade in which black women have been fighting in the streets, in the schools, through the courts, inside and outside the wage relation. The significance of these struggles ought to inform the writing of the her story of women in Britain. 
It is fundamental to the development of a feminist theory and practice that is meaningful for black women. We cannot hope to reconstitute ourselves in all our absences or to rectify the ill-conceived presences that invade her story from his story. But we do wish to bear witness to our own her stories. Black women have come from Africa, Asia and the Caribbean and we cannot do justice to all their her stories in a single chapter. Neither can we represent the voices of all black women in Britain. Our her stories are too numerous and too varied. What we will do is offer ways in which the triple oppression of gender, race and class can be understood in their specificity and also as they determine the lives of black women. The black women's critique of history has not only involved us coming to terms with the absences, a really important way to start her article, I believe, because it's the essence of what this episode is all about. Not only do we need to understand the ways in which we aren't represented and we do not feature in historical narratives as black women, but also the ways in which it does see us, the way history makes us visible when it chooses to see us. The problem is not just the absences, but also the way in which black women are portrayed. The way in which black women have been fighting through activism across society which should in ways inform the writing of the her story of black women in Britain. Black women have migrated from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Asia, and their narratives are not homogenous, as Carby says. We know as early as the Roman Empire saw the presence of black women in this country, all the way to the present day. Black women within British society are often defined by their race, gender, class, sexuality, And these intersections have and continue to impact their experiences and their opportunities, which is why the representation of them must be intersectional. Intersectionality extends beyond feminism and feminist movements. It's a way that black women are portrayed historically that must take into account the ways in which certain aspects of our identity, of the world in which we inhabit, shapes our experience. When we think about British history, we've got to ask ourselves, I think, these three questions. If black women's stories are represented at all? And then if they are, who out of those black women that existed get to share their stories, be heard and come to voice? And thirdly, what do those stories then say about black women, black motherhood, black womanhood and the like? Sojourner Truths Ain't I Women is a key text in understanding the way in which womanhood and in some regards femininity have been denied to black women historically. Denied through enslavement, which is a sentiment that has persisted over time. Now I'm sure I've read out parts of Sojourner Truth's speech before and I always like to remind people that it's more likely she had a German accent than a southern accent, but the speech has been rewritten with a southern accent, hence the title, Ain't I a Woman?, Um, So I'm going to read it as it has been remembered and has been passed down. But just another point to make, you know, about the way that black women's stories um, are represented historically, sometimes inaccurately. Anyway, she says, That man over there says women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages 
and lifts me over ditches or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have ploughed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could heed me. And ain't I a woman? I work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne thirteen children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? In her speech, Sojourner Truth speaks loudly and openly and very clearly um, to what feminism once was and in some ways still is um, the focus on on white women and their rights Um, and in doing that eclipsing completely the needs which are often more complex um, and more nuanced when it comes to black women Um, and this is the case not only for the way in which uh, black women are represented historically but also um, for their lives our lives today um, and the ways in which um, we might be disproportionately treated by different institutions and services within society. Um, We can think about things like the mortality rates of pregnant black women, the disproportionate ways um, black girls are treated in schools in Britain. I'm thinking about child Q um, and I'm thinking about violence meted out to black girls Um, as young as school-aged within British society. I'm thinking about the way race exacerbates gender pay gaps um, and things of that nature. And I think just to kind of further hammer home this idea of intersectionality, um, it makes sense to have none other than Kimberly Crenshaw. She's not here, don't get too excited. Um, A clip from Kimberly Crenshaw speaking about um, intersectionality uh, essentially as a framework for which we can kind of understand and see the way things work within today's society, which I think she does really well in this clip. And this clip is taken from the National Association of Independent Schools, a YouTube video titled Kimberly Crenshaw, What is Intersectionality? Intersectionality is just a metaphor for understanding the ways that multiple forms of inequality or disadvantage sometimes compound themselves and they create obstacles that often are not understood within conventional ways of thinking about anti-racism or feminism or whatever social justice advocacy structures we have. Intersectionality isn't so much a grand theory, it's a prism for understanding certain kinds of problems. African-American girls are six times more likely to be suspended than white girls. That's probably a race and a gender problem. It's not just a race problem, it's not just a gender problem. So I encourage people to think about how the convergence of race stereotypes or gender stereotypes might actually play out in the classroom, between teachers and students, between students and other students, between students and administrators and commit themselves to understanding that as a way of intervening and providing equal educational opportunity for all students, regardless of their identities. Identity isn't simply a self-contained unit. It is a relationship between people in history, people in communities, people in institutions. So schools do a good job when they understand that and when they commit themselves to curricular development, to opportunities in the school, for all students to understand the histories that have brought us to this particular moment. You can't change 
outcomes without understanding how they've come about. So independent schools can take the lead on that to be responsive to their student populations and to the communities out of which the students come. As Professor Crenshaw explains, and this episode aimed to explain, is that intersectionality is a framework in which feminism and many other things relate to. Um, And as she explained in the clip, looking at the way it impacted school children in particular, um, this episode is essentially a case of us understanding the way in which black women are represented in history um, and the questions we need to ask ourselves when we see them, when we don't see them, first of all, when their absence is, but also when we do see them um, and the impact that the way they are represented has on our perception of black women in society today. They're all linked, you know. It's very clear that the way um, the structures regarding history um, and the way in which history is told has a direct impact on today and our perception of society and the wider world today. It's it's very, very clear and always has been. And I thought I would leave you um, with some books, a list of books, autobiographies actually written by black women, um, just to show and give a taste of the breadth of black life in Britain as it relates to black women. Um, And a lot of these are more contemporary texts. Some of them, as I mentioned, Mary Prince, Mary Seacole, um, their autobiographies were written in the 18th and 19th century. Um, So then my list from there is pretty much all 20th century, 21st century texts. Um, But I just wanted to feature them just so you know, if you've listened to this episode, you know where to go. You know where to start your reading. So there are, of course, collective texts. Um, Heart of the Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain, which I've talked about numerous times on this podcast before, by Beverly Bryan, Stella Dadzi and Suzanne Schaaf. Um, and this was republished by Verso Books quite recently, so widely available. There is also a text called This Is Us, Black, British Women and Girls, um, curated by Kafayat Okanlawan. Um, and I've spoken about this one on this episode, I think, as well before. Um, but essentially, it's a collection of poetry and prose by black British women and girls aged four to 86. There's over 100 pieces in there and the book is beautifully cre- curated um, and put together. In terms of autobiographies, there is Black Teacher by Beryl Gilroy, which I have done a whole episode on before. Um, if you don't know, Beryl Gilroy moved from Guyana to London in 1952 um, and was pursuing a career in education as a teacher. Um, she talks about the experience of that, the setbacks, the challenges, the difficulties in her eventually becoming one of the first black head teachers in Britain. There is also And Still I Rise, Seeking Justice for Stephen by Doreen Lawrence, which is a story of Doreen's loss, um, the loss of a mother uh, as her son was murdered in 1993 um, by a racist gang. Um, And the way in which it kind of goes through the story of how um, Doreen Lawrence and her husband have changed the face of British policing and the criminal justice um, system and the way in which they had to challenge the institutions to take the murder of her son seriously and actually bring to justice those who had um, committed that crime and actually investigate the case. There is Coconut by Florence Alagide, and that is all about um, the generation of Nigerian children that were born in Britain in the 50s and 60s, privately fostered by white families. 
Um, and Coconut is a story of one of these children um, as she kind of talks about her life through the foster system um, and with a white family, that is. There's My Life in Football by Hope Powell. Um, Hope Powell is essentially probably one of the most successful women in football and that's down to not just playing but coaching as well um, and it is the story of her fight, her relentless fight for equal rights as a black gay woman who has been um, battling against authority and battling against the systems that have been holding her back in some ways um, but also about how her determination um, and her bravery and courage has led her to, to where she is and led her to be able to make such an impactful change in the footballing landscape. There is also I Am Not Your Baby Mother by Candice Brathwaite. Um, and Candice is talking about motherhood um, as she began blogging her journey through motherhood. I think it was her first pregnancy. Um, and she realised the way that motherhood is portrayed in the British media was very unrepresentative of society at large, which features black women. Um, and so she writes this book as a way of really giving a kind of guide to to life as a black mother um, as she goes through this and obviously hasn't seen herself in those mum blogs and, and all the kind of stories about motherhood, which kind of links back to, to what I was saying in terms of black women not being allowed to have elements of their femininity and their womanhood represented in wider narratives, historically and otherwise. There is also Imperial Intimacies by Hazel Carby, which is actually what I'm reading currently. Um, and, you know, Hazel Carby, shout her out again. It's probably why I've uh, brought in White Women Listen as well. She's just been on my mind. Um, but she has this, her newest publication, I believe, Imperial Intimacies. Um, and this story so far, I'm not very far in, I won't lie. Um, but it moves between Jamaica, Devon, Bristol, Cardiff, Kingston... Um, and the working class states of South London, the Jamaican plantations, the hills in Devon, the port cities of the UK, um, as she talks about her family story. Um, and it's an intimate story, her personal history, that is. Um, but also, in a ways, kind of reminds me of like the way Small Island by Andrew Levy set up. This kind of idea of of there being two islands entangled, uh, that being in this case Jamaica and Britain, um, and the ways in which her family kind of have have gone through this, and how she's used the archive in order to to pull out these histories. Uh, I'm not very far in, so I can't really say too much, and you know, don't want to spoil the book in case anybody does want to read it. Although it's quite nonfiction, um, so it's not really like there's a spoiler um, to be given, shall we say. There's also Just Saying by Mallory Blackman, my favourite childhood author um, that has come out, I think, last year. Um, and she speaks about her life and, and how she's kind of gone through publishing um, and writing. Similarly, Manifesto on Never Giving Up by Bernadine Evaristo, also a writer. Um, I think she's the first black woman to win the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and she's essentially writing about how she got there um, and that story. And I always find it interesting when writers write autobiographies because they talk then a lot about the process of writing which is always quite interesting to know about um so there are 12 i think i've given you 12 autobiographies of black women so you know if you like sport if you like poetry if you like something more heavy like policing education 
motherhood. There's something there for everybody on that list. Um, And so I hope you do use this month to not only engage with the histories of women, but also think about who is absent from these narratives, who is not being included, and how you can include them in your own understanding, in your own reading, in your own kind of work that you do. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you have a wonderful week and a great international women's month i think that is it women's international women's month women's history month i think there's a lot of like months that have a lot of labels at the moment that i can't keep up um but just have a great one thank you so much for listening goodbye